0: The justice of being privileged was a burden to carry. We may have got rid of racial laws, but we haven't got rid of the divisions that exist in our society. Uh, We cannot go on with a situation in the world where a narrow band of wealthy people control their countries and the world's economies, and a huge mass of people in so many countries live lives of the most desperate poverty. The color of somebody's skin is not the thing. The the fact is that that represents something else. It represents um, a threat because to people who are light-skinned and privileged, the person who looks different from them also represents everything that they fear. Loss and a change of their lives. Um, Whereas if those people simply had different color hair or different colored eyes, they would not be able to make the same divisions and the same excuses for racial differentiation. When I talk to to school learners um, they very often say to me yes i know that that is so and that's what i I want things to be to change but my parents say to me get a get a a good education and get out of this um, either out of this country or get into a world where you will benefit and so they have to struggle with that parental pressure to um, to succeed in the world as it is, rather than to change the world for the better. But it was the fact that apartheid was somehow, it epitomized difference. It epitomized uh, turning live human beings into objects. Who were a threat who needed to be pushed aside who didn't have rights the south african example shows that reconciliation is not possible without justice uh, an economist who says that there is a very big difference but an importance between thinking and doing and that the thinking is as valuable as the doing and Mandela had 27 years to think that takes us back to the question of education to teach our young people that yes you need to act and yes, you often need uh, an emotional impulse to make you act, but it's the thinking that comes beforehand and the preparing yourself to take action that is hugely important. Mm-hmm.
1: Welcome to the Learner Space Conversations. My name is Gabriel Scheid, and we are here to try to create a, a better future for everybody. Education is the key to that better future, but despite knowing better, we're still stuck in our old ways, preparing our young people for a world that doesn't exist anymore. Join us in exploring how we can get a little closer to the tipping point, so that, amongst other things, we don't need to have these conversations anymore. In each of our episodes, we'll be reaching out to thinkers, authors, educators, doers, social entrepreneurs, and and why not, dreamers. When in the words of D.H. Lawrence live their dreams with open eyes and make them happen. Today's episode features Mary burden who lives in Cape Town, South Africa. Mary is uh, truly a living legend. She is a lifetime civil rights pioneer. She was born in Argentina. She then moved on to Brazil where she met a South African man that she later married. Went to South Africa in 1961 and confronted with the perplexing reality of racism together with a group of white women fought alongside Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu and other fellow civil rights pioneers in abolishing apartheid, very often at her own personal risk and that of her family. Uh, From 1986 until 1990, she was the president of the white women's resistance organization, the Black Sash. Uh, about which she's going to tell us now. And in 1995, Nelson Mandela appointed her to the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. She was one of 17 commissioners, and she served on the Human Rights Committee. Thanks for being here with us today, Mary.
0: Thank you, Gabriel. It's good to be here.
1: Mary, can you share snippets of your, of your life story be- beyond what I just said?
0: <laughs> you mean my early life story? <laughs> 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 or all of it, all of it, <laughs> all of it. Okay. Well, as you said, I, I came to live in South Africa when I married Jeff, and I knew very little of what to expect. Um, I, was, I was raised in, in Argentina and in Brazil. I went to school in Buenos Aires for my high school years um, as a boarder at Northlands. And then I went to, back home to Brazil. And from there, I spent a little time in Europe. And it was during that time that I met Jeff, who was a student then at the London School of Economics. Um, And then when we both finished our studies, he came back to South Africa and I went back to Brazil. And I worked there on a a weekly newspaper, an English language newspaper, which um, was mostly read by uh, people who were coming to work in Brazil and didn't yet speak Portuguese. So it was not only English speakers, but um, people from Germany and Holland and, and other countries like that so, But it was, it was, of course, mostly just uh, local news. And um, then, then we decided to get married and I arrived in South Africa as a new wife, very keen to do well and to be accepted and to learn to know all about my new country. And I did know that apartheid existed, but I didn't really understand exactly what it implied. And it was as I began to see the details around me in life in Cape Town, um, that I began to get anxious and to want to understand things better. For example, at that time in in Cape Town, the government which had really introduced the strengthening of apartheid. Instead of letting it um, change more gradually as had been anticipated before the national party government, now this new government was imposing apartheid more and more strictly. And one of the things that they were doing were separating areas where people of different colors lived together and uh, moving the black people out of those areas. And it was called the Group Areas Act. And so families who had lived as neighbors for a long time saw many of their neighbors being driven out, sometimes forcibly, sometimes with government trucks carrying and possibly damaging all their possessions. Uh, Schools were segregated, the whole process of, of apartheid and of identifying people by their supposed race was being put into effect. And it was so heartbreaking to see that. What,
1: what made you move from learning, understanding, and even feeling compassion for what was happening and the plight of those families that were being segregated and moving to action?
0: Well, at first I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any resources like that. And so I kept asking questions and I, I kept trying to find people who could give me answers. And somebody then told me about an organization of women, which was called the Black Sash. Um, And they were women who, the organization was then about 10 years old, and they campaigned for human rights in general, but they too had witnessed all these uh, increased uh, actions to separate people into racial groups and had become more active They held protest demonstrations in all the cities of South Africa. And they wore a black sash across their shoulder as a sign of mourning for the loss of human rights. And when I heard about them, um, I started to ask how I could find out more. And a friend of mine who had told me, um, arranged for us to go and and, uh, apply for membership. And from that moment on, I was inspired by the example and by the knowledge and wisdom and dedication of this wom- these women, just slight generation older than I was, who campaigned so bravely, who were mostly middle-class white women um, and, and working very much outside of what one would think would be their comfort zone. They were also very often uh, well, very well-educated women who uh, were able to analyze and explain the intricacies of the law and they were such an inspiration and from then on I was like a like a sponge soaking up the knowledge that they shared with me and I found small ways to to support them and the organization was divided into a system of smaller branches so in each of our branches I formed close friendships so those were really my first true good friends um, and support system. And I would become involved in taking minutes of meetings, and then I was a treasurer for a while and gradually doing the mundane tasks that an organization needs to function as a volunteer organization. And were, that was were, how, were
1: you aware of the risks at the time of how that could impact your life?
0: You know, white people. one of the, this was one of the prices that had to be paid, that white people were quite protected. It was not so easy for, uh, especially at that time, still in the the late 1960s, um, for white people to be uh, affected by police action. So our demonstrations, for example, they were watched by the police, they were photographed, we knew that we were being recorded and, and identified, but one didn't really feel uh, vulnerable at at that point. Later on, when things became much more difficult, some of our members were held in security police detention for long periods. Um, Some of us who were not South African citizens were threatened with deportation and it became much more risky. Um, In addition to that, many working women were threatened at work with losing their jobs. Um, Many members were made very aware that their husband's businesses would suffer, as Jeff's indeed did, by losing government business, by also being included in the monitoring process. So we knew we were under surveillance, but we were not at the kind of risks that black people were. We were not suffering like the majority of the population were. And I think that was also something that motivated us to work harder, that the injustice of being privileged was a burden to carry.
1: What about your friends and family? Did they make you feel left out? People in your social circles were... What were the reactions because you were linked to the resistance?
0: We used to say we could spoil any dinner party straight away. (laughs) (laughs) And people would... would, um, push us into awkward situations, because they would ask questions and accuse us and criticize us. And so then we would get into arguments and so on, which meant that eventually one circle of friends was smaller and people with whom you agreed. So, um, yes, and the other thing is, of course, that Jeff's family were concerned. They They didn't share my feelings um they were worried for my safety and worried for the implications for themselves as, as a family and so on so that was an area that we had to negotiate very carefully um and and sometimes then as my boys grew up they sometimes had um comments passed at school and and so on but again you know they were at a at a white school with all the benefits of a white education and they brushed that off to a great extent and I think later on became quite proud of the fact that they came from a family that was opposing injustice.
1: Mary, your story and that of the people who worked alongside yourself is a tremendously successful story an inspirational story for the whole world, not only in terms of how you were able to successfully drive out apartheid and return civil rights to millions of people who were oppressed in South Africa, but also in how a What everybody thought would be a tremendous bloodshed was averted in the years uh, after that. But how do you feel now? Now the world is kind of reversing to many of the things that you saw at that time, which seemed to be like an impossible scenario. And uh, we're being witnesses to the paradoxical return of many of the old-time atrocities that are being committed in, in different places all over the world.
0: It is very hard. I remember so well the euphoria that we felt in 1990 when eventually the government was forced to concede that apartheid was no longer a possibility and had to change and had to enter into a process of dialogue. And as you say, it was an example for the world of how to change a system without um, entering into a process of a civil war. The violence before had been terrible, Um, The memories that we have of those who were lost and killed are terrible, but at least we worked out a way to build what should have been a new democracy. And it was at first. Little by little, step by step, we built a constitution, we built a Bill of Rights, we created, well, we protected our judiciary, which until then was maybe um, not not terribly uh, active, but was not corrupted. And then, unfortunately, people who were in power were tempted, were lured into corruption and the destruction of our economy through massive corruption. And now we are trying desperately to climb back out of that situation. And two weeks ago, we saw an attempt which was probably instigated by those who want to go on looting and on benefiting from corruption to stage massive protests Mm -hmm. um, and to uh, spur people on to looting and violence in many of our cities, which has shaken everybody. And maybe that might be a good step to come out of this terrible situation to awaken people to the gross inequality that we still live under. So we may have got rid of racial laws, but we haven't got rid of the divisions that exist in our society. We have, like like many other countries now, we have a narrow echelon of people who control the economy, the banks, um, and this system is a system of, of the world. We have to change that system. And we hope that maybe more and more people are awakening to that. Uh, We cannot go on with a situation in the world where a narrow band of wealthy people control their countries and the world's economies and a huge mass of people in so many countries live lives of the most desperate poverty.
1: You mentioned that you were able to act because you were in a position of privilege in in your view and after your life's experience what is the role and responsibility of people who are in positions of privilege in, in terms of making change happen
0: well th- those who are most privileged very often have the ear of governments and so there is a kind of collusion between the The capitalist system, the wealthy people, those who control the economies, and governments. Um, And they tend to be be, um, conservative in in economic terms. They don't want to see a mass redistribution of the wealth of the countries they live in and of the world in general. But what, what can wealthy structures in the world do with the amount of money that they have now? Why is it not possible to create um, a more equal, a, a more even distribution of the world's goods? Why are some, we, do we throw away food on one hand and, and other places people are starving? Why do we have systems of education where for some people the education is excellent and opens doors to all sorts of opportunities And others get the kind of education which will never allow them to progress beyond what their parents were progressed, if at all. Um, It surely is to the benefit of everybody to have a more equal system of of life in any country. I find it quite hard to understand why people um, seek then, if they live in countries that have many problems and protests from the from below, wish to then escape to other countries, which seem to be more affluent and less, prob- uh, less complicated by the difficulties of poor people. And what they do then is um, continue to multiply the divide between the wealthy world and the poor world. It, sh- it seems to me that we somehow have to convey that it is to the benefit of those who are wealthy to be less wealthy. And live at peace with their compatriots, but to communicate that message seems to be a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, thank you, Mary. Wonderful. Um,
1: at the heart of your 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 convictions and your fight is the whole idea of equality and uh, diversity and tolerance. Um, how do you see that in in today's world? Uh, because it seems that even though uh, there are some universally accepted truths about equality. Uh, We say collectively something, but we don't seem to act in accordance. How how do you see the world in terms of of the the movement for diversity, tolerance and equality?
0: I think the world is in a difficult place now. And this world pandemic, has the possibility to be for good or, or for bad. well? Obviously, it's for bad for health reasons. But in the long term, will this experience help us to look differently at ourselves and at one another? Maybe we can learn from it, um, and maybe we can. I think some of us, because of being isolated, have had time to reflect and time to read and time to look at different systems. So one looks at the people who have got some very very good ideas about how we can uh, bring about redistribution and try to learn to know one another better the the, the racial problems of the world are enormous and yet race is the color of somebody's skin is not the thing the, the fact is that that represents something else it represents um a threat because the to people who are light skinned and privileged, the person who looks different from them also represents everything that they fear, loss and uh, a change of their lives. Um, whereas if those people simply had different color hair or different colored eyes, they would not be able to make the same divisions and the same excuses for racial differentiation. So then those people are afraid of campaigns like Black Lives Matter, which I think have made a huge difference to the perceptions of the world. Um, And in that that sense, the world is changing a little bit. I think um, the fact that we see more and more black sports people, for example, at this moment in the Olympics, and the fact that we see more black people um, in positions of influence and power should begin to make us aware of the fact that we all have some skills and we all lack many skills, but that's going to take such a long time. How can we accelerate it? Only by living more closely together and learning to understand one each other better. Again, we, you come back to education every time.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that, that's Mary. Awesome. In 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 our world, the world of education, um, it may be a profession of deformation many of us have a lot of hope in the in the upcoming generations because they seem to have incorporated the whole idea of equality diversity and living together in, in harmony and not being so prejudiced about other people what you just mentioned in terms of those fears than, than the previous generation it seems to be a thing that is increasing positively my my own personal fear is that the system will, will thwart them that the system will not allow them to, when when they come of age, when they become in in positions of influence or leadership, that they they won't be able to exert a cultural change. How how do you see
0: that? I think that's true. And I think that um, it's very, very important to help them. Um, When I talk to to school learners, um, they very often say to me, yes, I know that that is so. And that's what I I want things to be, to change. But my parents say to me, get a a, a good education and get out of this, um, either out of this country or get into a world where you will benefit. And so they have to struggle with that parental pressure to, um, to succeed in the world as it is, rather than to change the world for the better.
1: Mary, I know you are always very, very humble and, and especially about your own accomplishments and, and the dimension of what you've achieved, but for just for the sake of, of helping others do what, what you did or, or uh, follow in, in, in your footsteps or even in, in their own, you know, create their own path, what do you think that made you have the courage to, work for action and, and work for change. If you look at, back at your life, what influences were there? How how did you come to be who you are?
0: I I find that a very hard question to answer. Um, people do ask me that. Uh, I know that I was lucky to have a good education. I went but I also went to a num a number of different schools because my my father was transferred and he when When I was born, I was born in Buenos Aires, he was um, a salesperson for Alpariatas, driving a truck in Necochea. And he gradually worked his way up in the business and was transferred from one town to another. So we lived in Necochea, we lived in Rosario, we lived in Paraná, then uh, he was sent to Brazil. And so I was constantly changing schools. some of them were good schools and some of them I was not very happy in. But I think I learned a lot from all of them. And then in my high school years, I had—I was lucky to have a very good education and, uh, and a school with a fine ethos um, of service to the community. But I didn't really appreciate that at the time. I just thought that that was how school was. Um, my father was not in the least bit political. My mother was a bit more aware of world affairs. I can remember her absolute fury about the situation in Czechoslovakia, what in the in the late fifties, something like that. But again, not not a politically active person at all. And I certainly did not aspire to a career in in politics or in public service. I th- I had hoped that. Um, once my, I had a family and they started to grow up, I might go back to writing and journalism and so on. But it was the fact that apartheid was somehow, it epitomized difference. It epitomized uh, turning live human beings into objects who were a threat, who needed to be pushed aside, who didn't have rights. And somehow that was the trigger for me But I don't think that I would have been brave enough to be active by myself. It was finding a group of people who inspired me, who taught me, um, who who offered a different model, different way of being. And I think that's what we all need is a hope. That there is a, a way to something better. So I believe that it is possible For human beings to build a better world. But there need to be more of us, there need to be more commitment, Um, there does need to be pressure There does not need to be violence because that only invokes worse violence. So peaceful but active, not not passive, sitting back and, and hoping that things will get better, nor even I really think there is a role for charity when situations are desperate, but charity perpetuates the situation rather than curing it. So you have to campaign for, for more than, than helping people. You have to allow people the, the power and the space and equip all citizens to have an equal chance in life. And then that, life, that will be better life for everybody. That's the point that I keep wanting to make, that it's to the benefit of everybody to live in a just society where people have a an equal chance
1: in the post apartheid era you were very active in various initiatives related to truth and reconciliation and uh, in south africa's case it was it was very clear uh, what truth and reconciliation was about i'm i'm thinking as we as we're speaking that if we ever get beyond this era of inequity and short-sightedness in education, we also have to engage in some kind of truth and reconciliation. Can you share with us how, how that experience was, uh, Mary?
0: Well, it is, it is the South African example shows that reconciliation is not possible without justice. And that, that process that South Africa went through was a mechanism to try and find a balance between the two. And uh, what happened was in the first government after the change, there was a commitment to building a new nation that was uh, really going to have an, an equality a degree of equality acknowledging that it would take time and that there would be a degree of justice that we had sacrificed some justice through the transition process but that uh, that was not going to mean that that um, There would be impunity forever. What we then saw was a sense of people wanting to grab um, some of what they, they had witnessed white people had controlled, people who wanted to have the kind of wealth which came from an unjust system. And they didn't mind the fact that they were polluting themselves by taking on um, the kind of corruption that had existed, also, under apartheid. So what we have learned is that you have to go back to the beginning. We have to start all over again. And each time we are confronted with some desperate situation, like the recent turbulence that we've had in the country, we are reminded of how important it is to do that. So you have to keep going to, to rebuild the institutions of justice and of government. So just recently in, in South Africa, a number of people have, have started a campaign which we call defend our democracy, protect our constitution, value it, teach it, make sure that the that, that children grow up knowing that that constitution has a Bill of Rights, that it defends their rights, and that they can claim those rights. And maybe if we can uh, build a generation of people who understand that, we can start to put together a different society. But the trouble is that we can't wait. We have to do that anyway, but we can't wait um, because everything will be destroyed if we don't put things right now. So we campaign for basic uh, economic justice um, as well as the traditional um, constitutional and judiciary issues. We have to find ways to even the balance between the rich and the poor. And there are, more, there are models being made. For instance, there, there's quite a lot of research about how a wealth tax could be imposed in a country like South Africa. And if one, one uh, created a system like that, most of the really wealthy people would barely feel a small increase in their income tax. But it could make a huge difference to what could be done to benefit the whole country. But what about a world tax, because it's partly a world crisis, this, where the rich countries of the world control the economies. What about the kind of global tax that would make a real difference, not charity, not interventions here and there, not um, the kind of things which often end up benefiting the giving country rather than the receiving country, a real transformation of the way we share the goods of this world has that
1: has that ever been seriously considered Mary? you know
0: one uh, you know it's only think writers and thinkers and and uh, people who can build models and teach us how to do it but how do we put them in positions of power and authority to bring it about reasoned argument and protests and demonstrations and demands. We have to go on and on and on until that happens.
1: When people remember the inspirational story of South Africa, it's inevitably, inextricably linked to the the figure of Nelson Mandela. And uh, sometimes we extrapolate to think that Successful revolutions can only happen when there is an exceptionally charismatic leader like himself. You were, you were a protagonist of that story. To what extent was, was that so?
0: I, th- I think so, so, um, obviously the, when moments arise and you get a person who has the charisma and the capacity um, to lead, uh, then we, we were very fortunate. I think that is one of the South African stories. And it was not only Mandela, it was the group of people around him um, and all that they had been through who had done um, a great deal of thinking. And um, I've just recently read of somebody who who met uh, Mandela before, just before he was released, uh, an economist who says that there is a very big difference but an importance between thinking and doing and that the thinking is as valuable as the doing and Mandela had 27 years to think and when he knew that he was going to be released this meeting he had with this economist showed that he had he was already anticipating his release and he was beginning to want to talk to people who had the kind of knowledge that he needed Mm -hmm. to put in new systems. And so he was asking questions about the economy, about how the banks work, about um, health programs, about all the things that his, his new government would have to consider at some point. And so I think that takes us back to the question of education, to teach our young people that Yes, you need to act, and yes, you often need uh, an emotional impulse to make you act, but it's the thinking that comes beforehand, and you're preparing yourself to take action that is hugely important. Mm-hmm. So that, that's been quite a new thought for me, um, that it's not a matter of rushing in to try and change. It's a matter of thinking first, and then deciding under the conditions that we have, what can we do? Build create, inspire, and so on. So yeah, that's where we have to go.
1: Wonderful, Mary. Um, Mandela was justly one of the most admired persons in his lifetime. And he will go down in history as a a modern day hero. But he paid a a terrible personal price for it, didn't he, in terms of his family, his children? and I, I always see some of these people, like himself or others, who literally laid down their lives for, for 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 their their causes for in their fight for for civil rights, like Martin Luther King, whom I admire very much. Um, is that an an unreasonable price to pay? Is that when when we think of young people, inspiration and 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 uh, leading lives of integrity, is that unavoidable? Is is that a, a an inherent price to pay for staying true to your convictions?
0: Well, in, in many situations that is the price to pay. There are many places in the world where uh, to raise your voice and to take action is very dangerous. But there are also many other places where uh, people have the, the the safety and the ability to to create change without having to pay that price. And so, again, the responsibility is is extra great. So if one lives in one of the um, wealthy countries of the world in the the West, so to speak, um, and looks at the world as it is, if only we could look at our world as a complete world and not our own little worlds, and understand that what happens in India and China and Singapore and and wherever the problems are so enormous, um, and where there are possibly pockets of solutions, and learn from those, and then try and spread them, um, then the price need not be so heavy. But at the moment, it does take people of enormous courage, and they very often pay a terrible price. We see, for example, uh, President Biden um, and acknowledging now um, what has, has created the problems in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So there is, there is beginning to be an acknowledgement among leaders in the West that the colonial history of their countries has created some of the problems that exist in this world now. And maybe that's a first step towards changing situations.
1: Final question. Suppose the genie came out of the bottle and uh, he or she appeared before you and said, Mary, I have one. I I will grant you one wish. What would that be?
0: Um, Oh, try and think of a realistic wish rather than a completely one out of of the air. Uh, I would wish for South Africa that we um, could take some serious steps towards removing inequality and poverty uh, and and take them immediately so that there could be a visible, instant change. Because the trouble is people have waited so long that they don't want to wait any longer. Thank you,
1: Mary. That was, that was wonderful. Uh, we encourage all of, all of those uh, that are listening to the, this podcast to follow Mary's work and, and life story. Uh, you just need to look for Mary, B-U-R-T-O-N, Mary Burton and South Africa, and you will get flooded with references and inspirational stories about what, what she's done. Thank you, Mary. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Gabriel. Good luck to you and all your work. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us today. American historian Abarjani once wrote, A bridge of silver wings stretches from the dead ashes of an unforgiving nightmare to the jeweled vision of a life started anew. And Mary's life and struggle has been moving from the unforgiving nightmare of racism to the jeweled vision of a life of freedom. Like we're trying to do in education, moving from what's currently a difficult, challenging, unforgiving scenario into a better future. That's what we're trying to do by hosting these Learner Space conversations. You can find this, any past and future episodes, at the website conversations.learnerspace.org. Thanks, and until the next one.